You know what everybody wants? Certainty. We'd all like certainty. In the early 20th century, polar exploration was the dot-com of the day. Everybody wanted in on it. Everybody wanted a piece of the action. The South Pole especially was seen as the last unexplored place on planet Earth. And if you could walk across it on foot with a team, you could etch your name into the history books and achieve a measure of notoriety. So on August 9th, 1914, a ship captained by veteran polar explorer Ernest Shackleton left England with a crew of 28 men, two years' worth of provisions, and all the confidence in the world. Two months later, they were docked on an island just outside of the Antarctic continental shelf. And then 10 days into the voyage, the unthinkable happened. The ship became trapped between two ice flows and sat immovable, hopelessly pinched between a thumb and forefinger of solid ice. And finally, pressure from the ice breached the hull, and Shackleton gave the order to abandon ship. And all those dreams of fame and notoriety and immortality faded like vapor in the cold Arctic air. This could not happen. Shackleton was a veteran. He knew what he was doing. It couldn't happen. His crew was incredibly well-trained. They were well-financed. It just couldn't happen. His maps were perfect. His strategy was perfect. His timing was perfect. It just couldn't happen. Ironically, the ship's name, The Endurance, you want to know what everybody wants? Certainty. I want certainty, don't you? You'd love to know that it will be all right in the end. You'd love to know that things will work out for the better. You'd love to know that you will make it to the end, but not just make it, but you'll make it well. And maybe you hear the same stats that I do. 50% of marriages end in divorce. 80% of students will be less close to Jesus than they were in high school at the end of their college experience. Every year, hundreds of churches close their doors. You hear those stats and you say the same thing that I say. Not me. Mm -mm. I'm not going to be that. I am in for Jesus. But in the back corner of our head, there is this nagging question, isn't there? What if I find myself pinched? What if I end up stuck? What if I end up where I don't want to be? What if I fail? And if we have the courage to listen to those questions, they lead us to a place where we'll ultimately ask a much better question. Where does endurance come from? That's the exact same question that a group of Christ followers were asking at the end of the first century. They were scattered across the Roman world and oppression was heating up. Would they make it? This is the last week in our fall sermon series called Vintage Faith. And just to review where we've been in Hebrews 11, Abel started us out and taught us that a faithful life begins with a righteous heart. Abraham taught us that faith is trusting God's plan, even a promise when you can't even see his plan. 
Sarah taught us that your plans may get you what you want, but only God will get you what you need. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph taught us that for a faith to be real, it must be passed down. Moses taught us that a faith that's decisive is a life that makes a difference. And last week, we took, to, took a look at Rahab, who showed us that faith isn't knowing what to do, it's knowing who you can trust. Every one of these faith heroes knew God deeply, and so they trusted him completely. So today, as we close out our series, we're in Hebrews 11, verse 32. And as you remember, the writer of Hebrews has been building his case toward one clear, resounding theme, Jesus is better. That's the summary of that whole book in three words, Jesus is better. And so at this point, he's got only one more witness to call to the stand. But this witness comes actually as a group. And as he calls them forward out of our memory, they all point to the same message. A resolved faith rests in Jesus and Jesus alone. So today I want to hang our study on three truths, three declarations of a resolved faith. And for you note takers who like are dying to fill in that blank page on the back of your bullets and here you go. One point, we are made to trust. We are made to trust. That's the first declaration of a resolved faith. We are made to trust. The writer of Hebrews is just about to close out his list of faithful heroes, but not because he's run out of examples. In fact, he finds some more. So join me in Hebrews 11, verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, and Samson, and Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced Justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. That's quite a list, isn't it? There's a lot going on there. Interestingly, this is the first time in the whole book that the writer uses the first person pronoun, I. It's like he jumps in and he goes, I got so much to tell you, I can't wait to get there. And you get the sense, don't you, that as he picks up the pace, it's like, oh man, he's really getting somewhere. He's kind of in a hurry. We're meant to see that, and we'll get to why in just a minute. Well, this is a massive list of people. Six specifically. Some of them you probably recognize, and some of you you don't. That's okay. But then he talks about prophets, and he starts to spin all these other ideas. And so by the time we get in here, he's imagining a crowd of about two dozen people. Could you imagine that? We're meant to picture this. Abel, Abraham, and Sarah. Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. Moses, and Rahab, all standing with Gideon, and Samson, and Samuel, and David. Could you imagine all these people in the same room? What would they talk about? A sea split open. Stars in the night sky. Sand on the seashore. 
sand-trod deserts, voices in the night, collapsing temples and a scarlet cord. And in the swirl of all these God experiences, we need to remember they share one thing in common, and it's really easy to miss, so I want to focus on it. Remember, the writer of Hebrews is making a point. And so by this point in the chapter, he's like a wise, seasoned lawyer who's brought up witness after witness after witness. We're the jury who at this point were like open ears, open hearts, like convince me of what you're trying to say. And nestled right there in verse 33 is his point. I don't want you to miss it. Who through faith. This is really cool because this group spanning thousands of years, two continents, all kinds of different stories, share one thing in common, faith. Faith is an interesting word, isn't it? It's like on plaques. We hang it in our dining rooms, right? We see it all over the place. What does actually biblically faith mean? It's Christmas time, or nearly there. So you can watch Miracle on 34th Street. Remember how seven-year-old Natalie Wood defines faith? Well, Mr. Gailey, Mama says that faith is believing in things when common sense tells you not to. Not to push back too hard against that, if that's your movie. But I think Hebrews 11 pushes a little further than that. And so if we were to take the idea of faith and try and wrap it up biblically with the whole counsel of God's word, I think there are three aspects to biblical faith. And I want to run over them really, really quick. And I want to use this stool as an example. Okay, the first aspect of a biblical faith that these people share in common with us today is knowledge. Knowledge. This is like data gathering. Okay, fact gathering that I hope will support a claim that I have. And so with this stool, like I'll do a quick analysis and go, well, it's like, it's braced really well. Screws are on there pretty tight. The seat's pretty good. It's not made of like sawdust and glue from Ikea. Like it's actual wood. (laughs) And so I take a look at this and I go, okay, I actually have faith that this thing can hold me. I've done the analysis. For many people, that's where faith stops. We look at Jesus and we go, great, moral teacher, inspiring communicator, really compelling leader. Like, yeah, I want to follow that Jesus. I I could do that. Jesus is good. Awesome. We can even take it one step further and go, you know what? I looked at all the prophecies. They all add up. They all point to Jesus. He's probably the Messiah. Like, yes, good. And for many people, that's the extent of our faith. Just knowledge, just up in the head. James. We'll talk about this. We're going to take a look at the book of James later next year at the North Canton Chapel here. And in his book, he says, you believe there's one God? Awesome. Great. Demons believe that. And so clearly, faith is not just mental assent. There has to be another element. And so here's the second aspect of biblical faith. It is belief. Belief. And so if knowledge is the head, belief is the heart. Not only do I understand something is true from data and facts, but I am convinced of it, like in my gut. And I'm willing to contend for it against something else. And so if I'm going to go back to my stool here, I'd say, not only have I examined the evidence and it looks good, but I'm convinced of it. And if it came to it, I could sit on it. I believe that it would hold me. People talk about Jesus like that all the time. Right? Faith isn't just like I know something, but I've become convinced of it. But here's the thing. Belief only comes when your faith starts to cost you something. 
when you have to compare it to something else in your life. And I remember this really well enough for me. When I was 17, and Jesus really started to wake some things up in me, and I had to go, okay, is my faith real? Because <laughs> it's not just all the stuff that I know, but like, am I actually convinced of it? Because if that's true, it's gonna cost me maybe friends, it's gonna cost me life patterns and things that I really enjoy in my life that I'm gonna have to give up. But if I'm a sinner and I'm really convinced of the sufficiency of Jesus, I've got to give it up in favor of something better. And so here's the comfort. Whatever you gain in Christ far outweighs what you lose in the world. And this is David when he said, you have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. Belief is not just I know something better. It's I love something better but there's still a third element and you see where this is going. You've got knowledge, you've got belief, you've also got trust. Saving faith isn't just knowing that the stool can hold me or becoming convinced of it. Saving faith is going up to it and going, I'm in. Or if you want to push the metaphor further, it's like taking your legs and going, look, everything, all that I have is resting on this. There's nothing else for me. It's all right here. Here's a little insight about trust. As you live your life, you can only trust one authority. You can only trust one stool at a time. It's the same thing with Jesus. You don't get a plan B. You don't get a contingency plan. This isn't a part-time thing. You sit there and you rest there because he's capable of holding everything that's most precious to you. But you know what many people do, at least practically? We live a life that says, Jesus and we talk like this. Well, I need security. It's a very real human need. So we say, well, if I'm going to feel secure, I need Jesus and something else. All right? I need to feel affirmed. I need to feel loved. And so that's going to be Jesus and. I need to feel happy. And if I'm going to get what I really want out of life, it's going to be Jesus and. And so we build up little insurance policies that just in case this Jesus thing doesn't work out, I'm going to find another chair that works and I'm going to get on with my life and live happily ever after. And here's the point with all of that, when it comes to faith, a life with a contingency plan is not a life that will satisfy you because you're always holding out for something else. We are made to trust. And so just to continue the crescendo here, we also want to see everything that this group actually did, okay? Because these guys trusted a God. So here's what I want to do. I want to read these verses over to you again. They're in verse 33. And you can close your eyes if you want. I want to read them slowly because I want you to really picture this. We're meant to savor these images. Here's what they did. They conquered kingdoms. They enforced justice. They obtained promises. They stopped the mouths of lions. They quenched the power of fire. Escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong out of weakness. They became mighty in war. They put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. But now watch this shift. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging 
and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, and they were killed with a sword. They went about in the skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and in mountains and in dens of the caves of the earth. Did you feel the shift? What happened? That first half sounds really good, doesn't it? I mean, like, you got all this, like, positive stuff happening, like, lions being muzzled. You're like, I'm in. Like, sign me up for that. And then it kind of, like, pivots again, right? You know, like, mocking and flogging, like, son and two. Are you kidding me? Last time I checked, no one in here wants to wander around in goatskins in caves. Sounds like a men's retreat meets Lord of the Flies. It's terrible. Like, don't do that. So it kind of raises the question. Is the Christian life one of hope or is it one of suffering? Yes. It's both of these things. Suffering is not incompatible with the faithful life. It is expected. These two are not opposed to each other. They are joined together. The faithful life does not discriminate between triumph and trial. And so practically, here's what we do in our lives. We wring our hands in frustration and we go, oh God, why is this happening to me? Which is a really good question to ask. But how you ask that question is even more important. Because if we ask that question out of exasperation, we unconsciously excuse God from the situation. But when we plead with God out of a heart that's desperate to endure, we invite him to unite all these like disparate pieces of brokenness and pain and like string it all together and make something beautiful. Because that's what he does. Never be surprised when God uses something tough in your life to make you someone tender. He is teaching and he is calling you to deeper faithfulness in him. God is not interested in making your life easier. He is interested in making you holier. And so suffering is a part of that picture. Easy doesn't bring you closer lasting joy. Holiness does. And so the first declaration of a resolved faith is we are made to trust all of it. Second declaration of a resolved faith is that we are made to worship. Look in verse 39. Now here's where things really start to heat up. And all of these, meaning all those two dozen people I just told you about, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. That's a very interesting remark. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. That's really kind of interesting stuff. Like, what's happening here? If you're hearing that right, there's a tension that kind of swells underneath those verses. How can it be that God's ancient people got God's approval but didn't get his promises? That's one question. Second question is like, how, what is this? Like, apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Like, that, that's like high talk for us on this side of the cross, So what are we to make of that? So here's what's going on. This is some pretty deep theological water, so wade in here with me. God's people have always been justified by faith, always been made perfect by faith. Maybe you've ever asked the question, how did people get saved in the Old Testament before Jesus? It's the same way. They're saved by virtue of faith in what God had revealed to them about himself, and they're held accountable for that. 
Over time, he shows them a little bit more and then a little bit more until finally he shows them everything. The theological term for this is progressive revelation, right? And it's always been this way. You can go back to Hebrews chapter one. Take a look at this one. You don't have to turn there. I just want to read it to you and see if you can't hear it. Here's what he says. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He holds up the universe by the word of his power. Like, you see him building this case that Jesus is better? And so he's saying, look, way back here, for Abraham, when God called Abraham, he's like, he peeled back just a little bit of the curtain. He's like, I want to show you just a little bit of what I'm doing. Take a look. And it was, go where I tell you to go, stars in the sky, sand on the seashore. And then with Moses, it was like a little bit more, right? And then as you work through the Old Testament, God peels back a little bit more of the curtain. He peels back a little bit more and more until finally when we get to Advent and then the cross, God goes, this, this is everything I want to show you. He's my son. He is God incarnate, and he's everything that you've been waiting for. I'm done hiding. I'm done with tablets. I'm done with prophets. It's him, right? This is a very big theological point. Paul talks about this in Colossians. Just listen to this one. Speaking of Jesus, he says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, invisible, invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He's before all things. In him, all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. You see what God's doing peels back the curtain little by little by little and then wham everything is there and so the writer of Hebrews picks up on that and he says it's the same thing it's the same God he didn't change things just because Jesus got here now here's the question for us why would he bother to go through all of that work why does the writer of Hebrews want to show us that so one question, and this may seem odd at this point, one question for us to consider. Where do you go to worship Jesus? And I don't mean a room like this. What do you do to treasure Christ? Last week I talked briefly about revival. And we took a look in Hebrews 11 and looked back at all these people who were there. And I believe that in their own way, each one of those people had revival in their own kind of scene. But revival, like if you want that, if you've prayed for that, if you dream about that, revival doesn't happen in a big tent. It doesn't happen in a big church gathering. It doesn't happen when everybody's all together, right? That's where revival leads, but where does revival start? Here's what Jesus says. When you pray, go to your room, shut the door, and pray to the Father who is in secret. What's Jesus saying? You will never be more of a faithful Christ follower than you are in private. 
So revival starts here. It starts with me crucifying my flesh. It starts with me giving up my idols. It starts with me going, God, show me where I am not faithful to you and align my heart. Revival always starts in the prayer closet, in the word. And so my push to you is where do you go to treasure Christ? Revival is when my heart actually matches my actions. What's in here actually comes out of here because then I'm free. We've been changed and we are being changed. Every one of these people in Hebrews 11 and this whole collage of people we just looked at briefly, they all have these private relationships with God that then propel them into a public space. But you know what we want? We gather on Sunday mornings, we go, how you doing? I'm good. Busy, good. Smiley, happy face. And God goes, you know what? Get back in the prayer closet and open my word and fall to your knees and let me begin to make you new. We are made for worship because that's all we can cling to is Christ. That's the second declaration of a resolved faith. We are made to worship. Third declaration of a resolved faith, and here we'll spend the last 10 minutes. We are made to run. Now, I love this part. Look with me in Hebrews 12. We're gonna fold over a chapter to verse one. Here you go, Hebrews 12, verse one. Therefore, okay, stop. Here's the thing, right? Little Bible study tip. I got this in Bible college, so I'm gonna extend it to you, and maybe you know this. Anytime you're reading your Bible and you come across a therefore, you need to stop and see what it's. Yeah, you know it. Again, it's the same thing in the first service. I thought I was gonna be all novel and creative, and you're like, pop that little thing. So here's the thing. Whenever you find a therefore, it's like a giant stop sign. The author's going, hang on. Everything I've been saying leads to this. I'm about to say something incredibly important. None of this, taken on its own, stands up until you get to here. Okay, so all of that. This is the symbol crash at the end of the crescendo. This is the writer taking that last little mountain pass and the sun is about to break over the peak and he's about to say this. So Hebrews 12 Verse one, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that set before him endured the cross, despising its shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It all comes to this. All of Hebrews 11, all the biographies, all the stories, all those remembrances that we bring up point right to these two verses. These two verses with two commands and one amazing truth. And before we get there, we need to see what the writer is doing. So he imagines faith like a race. You probably picked up on that. So here's the idea. In Roman culture at this time, racing was a big deal. It was very common and it was very communal. Neighborhoods and communities would find their favorite racer and they would run, right? They would go to see that person and sponsor that person. It was a lot like Friday night football here, okay? And it was also a religious activity. When you came, you would come and pay a tithe to the local god or goddess, right? And it would usually involve sacrifice. But here's the crazy thing. I love this idea. The crowd was an incredibly important part 
of these races. Because in a close contest, they didn't have photography. There wasn't a judge there to snap it. The crowd actually got to decide if the racer should move on or if the racer should go backwards. The crowd was an incredibly important part of this. And so with all of that, the writer lifts this idea out of its secular culture, riches it in theological language, and then drops it right in here. So here's what he's doing. Before he talks about how you should run or what it means to run successfully, verse 1, he says, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, what's that about? Get this. This is awesome to me. The writer envisions all those two dozen people, Abraham and Moses and Sarah and Gideon, all of these people. These aren't people who have just run their race and are now done. These are people who go up into the stands and are cheering us on. I take a lot of comfort in that, don't you? Why is that important? Do you know when I feel most overwhelmed by my sin? When I feel completely alone. I feel like, man, nobody gets what I'm going through. Nobody understands what this pain is like. Nobody knows what it's like inside my head to feel and think these things. (laughs) Now, my own waywardness has brought me to a place where I am completely forgotten. And so here's the gospel for you. You are not alone. You are not forgotten. You are seen, you are known, and you are loved. And in this eternal company of witnesses, isn't that such a great picture of the church? It ought to be. But now the writer gets specific. Two commands, one truth. First, the commands. So the writer says this. He says, lay aside every weight. And then he clarifies it and says, oh yeah, that's the sin that so easily entangles us. Right? So now he imagines like a runner He's saying, not just like I want you to run. It's not just about this race. It's like, what would it be like to run a race with weights around your ankles? That's what he's getting at here. What's his point? Sin hinders your effectiveness. It hinders your satisfaction. It kills your joy. And so what I want to do in a little bit here, I want to take a little bit of an aside and talk about five ways really quick that we invite sin into our lives and don't even know it. Okay? These are super common. I do them and you do them. So if I'm going to be vulnerable, just lower the wall and trust me on this one, okay? Five ways that I think we unconsciously allow sin in our life. We're going to hit them really quick, and then we're going to get back to the second command. Here's the first one. We ignore it. We allow sin in our life when we ignore it. You know what the easiest thing to do about your sin is? Nothing. To just go, you know what? Whatever. Nobody really knows about it. I don't really see how it's affecting. Eh, Okay, we'll just kind of let it slide for a little bit. The biggest lie that you can believe about your sin is that it's not affecting you. Right? And that's how this thing works. Because sin, most of the time, sinful patterns don't show themselves until years later. And you're going, oh my gosh, how did my life end up like that? It's the same thing with weights around your ankles. You can start off like 100 meters, you're going to be great, but wait till like a mile in or like three miles in or like 10 miles in, you're really going to feel the effect of that. And so the writer says, don't ignore that. Second thing, the second way we allow sin in our lives is that we stuff it. This is my favorite one, by the way, just to be vulnerable. Because I'll acknowledge that sin is in my life, but I just sort of want to like stuff it down there further to where I can forget about it. Here's why this doesn't work. Sin is not passive. Sin is pressurized. Here's what I mean. Do you ever have Rotor Rooter come out and like run that sewer line scope all the way out to the street? 
And they like put that thing down there and they go, oh my gosh, like there's years of stuff that's like backed up down there and it finally goes, no mas. And then like all of a sudden, like your basement floods. That's like sin. You can stuff it down there for a long time and some of us can stuff it down longer than others. But the truth is it's always coming back up, right? But you know what most people do? We learn to live with the dysfunction, right? We just kind of come up the basement stairs, close the door, and go, well, I just won't go down there anymore. (laughs) And so we learn to live a compartmentalized life where we can't do what God calls us to do because we are not who God called us to be. We are simply not free. Without knowing it, we've become slaves to something that we'd love to get rid of. Third way we allow sin in our life is we shift it. We shift it. This one's super common. When things back up too much, right, and things get too weird, we go, well, if my neighbor wouldn't shove, like, his kids' dirty diapers down the toilet, I wouldn't have this problem. We go full on Adam and Eve. She did it. The serpent did it, right? Why does that, like, feel so good? Because if I can shift the blame off of me and onto you, then my pride can live for a little while, and I'll never have to confront anything. I don't have to run a faithful life because you're running slower than I am, Right? <laughs> It's tragic. Acknowledging the existence of sin is not the same as taking responsibility for it. But we do it all the time. Fourth way we allow sin in our life is we tolerate it. We tolerate it. You know, this tolerating sin thing, this is when you begin to see sinful patterns as normal. So we say things like this. This is just the way that I am. You don't like it? Tough. Or how about this one? I'm too old to change. Right? Sounds like that. We tolerate it, right? But the biggest problem when people tolerate these sinful patterns in our life is how small their God becomes. Because we're in a sense saying, well, he can't change me. Mm Mm-mm. Really? You're bigger than God. Your sin is bigger than God. Have fun with that one. (laughs) So God becomes this quaint grandpa in the sky with a beard who is swept to the periphery of our life because we'd rather just continue going through the motions Inertia and boredom till we just fall over. Here's the last way we allow sin in our life is we justify it. We justify it. This is when I don't just like tolerate it or like I don't just blame other people. I actually invite it in because I think I deserve it. Sounds like this. I've been really good for a while, so... Right? I'm doing better than I was, so... Right? Those are the easy ones, but how about this? I don't ever talk this way, but I don't want to sound mean or I don't want to gossip, but it's this tragic, like, inward thing. But here's how this works. Explaining my sin always helps me feel better. It never helps me become better. So if that's not how we are supposed to run this race, what are we supposed to do? Go back to verse 1 again. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. And there it is. One of my favorite all-time movies is the 1981 classic Chariots of Fire. And I love it. In case you don't know the story, the film tells two parallel tales of two runners, Harold Abrams and Eric Little. Eric Little is the Christ follower, and so he seeks to bring his running under the umbrella of his faith in Jesus. Eric runs from his heart. Abrams runs from his head. 
But here's what I like most about Little as a runner. He was completely messy. And the film depicts that. If running could be learned from a textbook, Little never read it. He ran with his head cocked back and his arms were flailing and his stride was all jacked up. It was almost laughable. So in 1945, the Guardian newspaper wrote this. Little is remembered among lovers of athletics as probably the ugliest runner who ever won an Olympic championship. When he appeared in the heats of the 400 meters at Paris in 1924, his huge sprawling stride, his head thrown back, and his arms clawing in the air moved the Americans and later sophisticated experts to laughter. Rival Harold Abrahams said in response, this is insightful, many people shout their heads off about his appalling style. Well, let them. He gets there. You want to know how to run after Jesus? Doesn't have to be neat and tidy. Nobody's life who's really running after Jesus is neat and tidy. You look back over these examples, every one of them had chinks in the armor. Some of them real big ones. Doesn't have to be neat and tidy, just has to be real. And so you run however you want to run, but you run from your heart and you run looking to Jesus. Get the weights off of your ankles. There's one more thing before we close. Here's verse two. We learn three things about Jesus that we need to know. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So in Christ, we're running free. We're not weighed down. We're surrounded by others. We're not alone. We know our limits, but we also know where we're heading. Three things about Jesus. Who is he? He's the founder and perfecter of our faith. That is a great thing because I am not the founder and perfecter of anything, right? He called me. He saved me. He made me new, not me. But he's also the perfecter of my faith. He's working inside of me. He's cleansing me. He's saving me. He's making me a new creation, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That's who he is. But then what he did, he endured the cross, We need to think about that, that 150-pound crossbeam that he carried through the streets of Jerusalem, the nails that went right through his wrists, the thorns that went right into his head, this back that was ripped raw from scourging. He endured that, who he is, what he did, and then here's the thing. Why did he do it? It's right there in the text. Don't miss it. For the joy that was set before him. And so here's where we're going to leave this this morning. What joy, what is he thinking of? That lost sinners can be coming home. That broken things can be fixed. That the darkness of the fall can be pushed back and light can come in. So the writer of Hebrews says, let me call up all these witnesses Let me tell you about a faith that lasts and this resolved faith with certainty hangs on one person and one person alone and his name is Jesus. So here's where we're gonna end this morning. The band's gonna come up in a little bit. We've said three things. We've said we are called to trust. We are called to worship called to trust, this idea of like, I'm right here. I'm gonna lean everything I have on this. I'm called to worship, to delight in Jesus. And then I'm made to run. 
And so in this room this morning, maybe you hear that and you go, you know, this is how I've approached Jesus, maybe from my head, maybe from my heart, but I never put anything on the line for him. I've never actually sat down and said, it's all for you, my life, everything. There's some of us who hear that idea that we're made for worship and you go, I don't feel like worshiping. It's been so long since I've had joy in my heart. Even to hear about it is depressing. There's some of us who say, you know, we're made to run and that's all well and good, but I've had these weights around my ankles for years and I can't shake them. And so I want to invite you to do something. I believe sometimes the physical can be a catalyst for the spiritual. and We don't do this very often around here. But I wonder if as we close this series on all these faith heroes, and as we lift up the sufficiency of Jesus, I want to invite you as the band plays quietly, if you just need to come up here and just take a knee and go, Jesus, I'm leaving these weights right here, not on my ankles anymore. Maybe you doubt something. Maybe you doubt that you can be free. You doubt if God even hears you. Maybe you need to come up and go, God, please make sense of this thing in my life. Or if you don't want to, that's okay. Just kneel where you are and just take a moment. Don't leave this room this morning without doing business with a God who loves you and can make you new. Let me pray. Father, we want to declare again that you are good. You know us and you love us and you've given us these examples, all these people we can look at and we envy their life and say, God, what would it be like to live like them? And we know on the other side of that, they're saying, what would it be like to live here on this side of the cross? So God, we say thank you for Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. This carpenter's son who was broken, bled out for lost sinners like us. So, Father, would you draw us now? Draw us to a place where we hear your voice and we respond to your spirit. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.